If you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12. We'll be reading Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Acts 12, 1 through 17. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said to them, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and historical and instructive word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, cause us to feel this morning. To feel with our brothers and sisters back there 2,000 years ago. To wrestle 
with you, your ways, your love, your care in the midst of our lives. Help me unfold what we have written here in the text to our hearts and to our minds, to the glory of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. Is God God? You see, the eternal, holy creator of all things that are made visible and invisible, isn't he absolutely sovereign over everything? And if he is, then, how is it that James, the son of Zebedee, one of the inner circle three apostles, one with whom Jesus poured out his life and very finite, limited time to invest in him and Peter and his brother John. How is it that James here is killed so early in the church history and so young? He's probably no more than 40. Or 41. His brother John will live another at least 50 years. How is it that you in your life experience that pain or that grief? or that loss, or that confusion, or that just dismay over happenings, or that anxiety, or on and on. Is God really sovereign? Does He really love you? The answer is he is really sovereign. And he really loves everyone who belongs to him in Christ. Loves you with a love that is unimaginable. And thus cares for each and every Christian. And he really is not only sovereign and loves you, but he is calling all of us in Christ to live in the light of the big picture of redemptive history. He's calling you to live in the light of your History, which will culminate one day in the resurrection from the dead and into the unending enjoyment of the glory of God Himself for you.
forever. That's what James, the son of Zebedee, lived for. And that's what he died for. And Peter, a few decades later, he wrote a letter to be distributed to the hundreds and hundreds of churches throughout numerous Roman provinces. And he said these words to them and to us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. But instead this, when it does, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, in our day and age, the political and the governmental climate of our culture, it has taken a radical turn against biblical Christianity, against biblical sexual ethics. And it's only getting worse by the day. Just feel that a little bit. Because it's just a little bit compared to what our brothers and sisters in our text were feeling in the early church. Imagine that you are a a, a Christian Jew living in Jerusalem. And now, word starts to spread throughout the community that a number of your brothers and sisters in Jesus have been arrested by King Herod. Maybe a few of them have already been killed. They're arrested very violently. And then you hear that one of your main leaders, the Apostle James is arrested. And all your home groups are even turning more and more into only prayer meetings as you feel the desperation. And I don't know, a day or two, we don't know, three or four, you get word. Herod has just publicly executed the Apostle James. And in those home groups all over Jerusalem, many are experiencing grief, fear, confusion, dismay. How can that be true? This is is James from Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Surely God would protect James. day later, two, three, someone burst into your prayer meeting home group and announces, they've just arrested the Apostle Peter. And the week of Passover begins. The culture was very much against 
King Herod knows the culture as, as a whole of Judaism in which they were living and existing as the church and preaching. He knew the culture was against this little sect. And so, after killing James, he saw his political approval rating skyrocket. That's, let's get another one then of their leaders. And he does. And he knows the culture very well that Passover week has started and there are to be no executions until it's over. So on the last day of Passover, all over the city in all kinds of homes, the church, the believers are meeting with 30 or 40 or 50 people and they're praying because they know the next day Herod plans to execute Peter publicly. There are times when for them, for us, there are times when it just seems as if evil is winning. Wicked men get away with murder and their popularity goes up. Loved ones grieve. They hurt. And that pain lingers and lingers and lingers. And it's very easy to wonder. Where's God in all of this? Is he awake? Why did he allow this or that to happen? Don't give me Romans 8.28 right now. How could any good come out of this? There are many times in every Christian's life when it feels like evil is winning. It's winning in our culture, it's winning in our churches, and it's winning in our homes. There are hard times in marriage. If you marry long enough. There are hard times in raising children when they're small or when they're adults. We live in a time right now when the approval ratings of biblical Christians is plummeting in the culture. How can any good come out of this? The Apostle John had his dear brother ripped away from him for good in this life. He must have at least thoughtfully prayed to his friend. Why, Jesus? Why? So if you're there, let's go to the passage. Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. 
And when he saw that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people and cut his head off. That's what it means. Now, this Herod called King Herod is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great in the Gospels during Jesus' birth who had the babies in Bethlehem slaughtered. He also had this grandson's dad killed also. Okay. Herod was, the Great was always in panic. So this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. He also has a son who will become king, King Herod Agrippa. The second, the one that later on you'll see the Apostle Paul preach to while he's in Caesarea in jail. And that's the Herod Agrippa II who says to Paul, Will you in such a short time convert me to Christianity? Paul? Okay, so this is his dad. This is Herod Agrippa I. He claimed to be a Jew. What he really was was this. A politician who cared about himself. That's what he was. He was a finger in the wind. How's the culture going? Whatever I need to do to be more liked, that's what I will do. He wanted favor with the Jews. That was his domain that he was given authority over by Rome as king. He even moved his palace from Caesarea, way up north and more Gentile towards area, into Jerusalem himself. The first century historian Josephus lets us know that he went every day into the temple grounds and read the scripture out loud. He participated in animal sacrifices. He observed the Jewish festivals, the yearly festivals and the feasts. He used his influence even to stop Caesar from putting up a statue of himself in the Jewish temple. Not a good idea! And he prevented it. Because he knew to keep Rome happy, I have to keep the Jews happy. That's who he was. All his religiosity was purely political to him. It was not spiritual. And he viewed this Jewish sect in Jerusalem and in Judea, the Jewish sect of these Jesus people, as disruptive to the peace, as a problem. And so we see in our passage, he began arresting a number of these Christian Jews. And then, one of their leaders, an apostle, who lived and walked with Jesus and a witness to the resurrection, James. Then he executed him publicly, beheaded him. And then he saw his poll numbers go up. And that encouraged him, let's go get another one. For Herod, if it makes the Jews happy, then I'm happy. 
Because when they're happy, that's good for me, and I care about me. Okay. And so he's dead because of a narcissistic, political, governmental figure. And that feels arbitrary. That feel It's one thing if your child goes off to war and you deem it a good war and is killed okay, there's purpose. You think about this. It feels as if there is no God. feels like there's no one in control. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John. One of the only three whom Jesus particularly chose. You three, come with me up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Is all of a sudden, early on, and as a young man, gone. And he's not coming back because of a wicked political government leader. And if any of us think, well, just the way this world is and God could not have saved James from death, then you did not read the passage. And you need to read it very carefully. Because God goes on to miraculously prevent Peter from being killed. It's all right there. So he could have done the same for James. Why didn't he? Well, here's one answer I know to be true. It's not real deep. You say, why down here? I don't know. But one reason is this. Because he did not will to deliver James. No wicked act not even the slaughter of Jesus' close earthly friend. Nothing takes place apart from God's sovereign will. James was not killed because God took a nap and fell asleep. Any more than, than, than God lost sovereign control for a few hours one night when Herod Antipas, years earlier, got into a drunken stupor and shot off his stupid mouth and it cost John the Baptist his life with a head on the platter. Nope. Let me, there's a, how do you draw lessons? Here's one simple lesson to draw out of this. Those preachers and those teachers today. Pastors, preachers, teachers, whatever they want to call themselves, who teach that it is always God's will to deliver His children from troubles, from sickness, from disease, from death, from tragedy, from poverty. 
And the reason they're not is because of them not pulling the right levers. They are false teachers. There's a difference in the way that I boldly said that. Every true teacher teaches imperfection and wrong things and change their mind. These are false teachers teaching doctrines of demons. But instead of going that way, hear, have ears to hear what James' mom and his brother John took to heart. And I think it's something like this. God does not love us less just because He has allowed tragedy to enter our lives. Because God loved and the Lord Jesus resurrected and ascended, loved the brothers of Zebedee just as much as he loved Peter. Jesus gave him that name. They're probably fiery guys. He loved the sons of thunder. And yet he allowed James to die and John to mourn. But then he goes on to deliver Peter from death. And the explanation for why he did that, I mean, you can just look at the text. And you can just keep looking in vain because he doesn't give an explanation to us, he doesn't offer one. But instead, the reality is this that often. In tragedy, in relationships, gone bad in all kinds of circumstances, there is only in the midst of it pain. And it takes time, sometimes much time, to be able to even look back with 2020 vision down the road and to maybe guess at any temporal lessons learned from such experiences. So, so let me just, maybe, okay, Luke, why do you want to tell this? You've got to think of the volumes Luke knows and chooses not to say. He wanted to say what he says in our passage. Here, here's one shot at maybe why. No man, not even one of the inner circle three, there is no man that on this earth is indispensable to the proclamation and the extension of the gospel. The death of James did not hinder the spread of Christianity. And in fact, this, this, this section, you can say, ends over there at verse 24. But the word of God increased and it multiplied. 
And there's another lesson that I think is a lesson we should know and know for sure. And that is this. In that situation or any situation, we are to trust God. Especially when we're confused and we're overwhelmed and we have no idea what He is doing. And it seems crazily stupid to us. And that trusting Him is causing His people to look to him it drives us to prayer pick up again in verse 3 and when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews in killing James he proceeded to arrest Peter also this was during the days of unleavened bread and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so, Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. There is no prison. There are no circumstances that can keep God out. Or that can keep His children locked up in them. If God wills to free them. God could have easily freed James. It was no big deal to get Peter, as we're going to read here, and we just, out of this, you cannot secure a prisoner more than Herod did. He might have been warned by the Jews of, we had them in our temple jail one time and they just disappeared. Okay. And so Herod assigned four squads of four soldiers each. Two of them were chained by their wrist to both of Peter's arms. Two more were at the jail cell, and two were at the, uh, the palace gate that when you jump out, now you're into the rest of the city of Jerusalem. If the Lord wills to spring Peter from that jail, it's no more of a problem for him than it is for us to flick a piece of dry bread off our shoulder. So, so now as I read now, starting with verse 6 on, just I'm not going to comment much on it other than to do it right here quickly because that could be a whole sermon. I am stunned that Peter was asleep. I don't get it. The night before he is to be executed. Verse 6. So now... When Herod was about to bring him out that next morning and execute him, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. 
And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done to him by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision or dreaming or something like that. When they had passed the first and the second guard, whom God can put to sleep at will, they came to the iron gate leading into the temple. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel, this is not a dream, and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So humanly speaking, it's clear. That's why Luke gives this detail. He's going to die. There is no springing Peter. He himself is helpless. And that's the perfect place to be for God to get glory if he chooses to deliver you. Or Peter. As that angel said to Jesus' mom, nothing will be impossible. For the God. And there's another lesson. We need to think about it. Why did God allow Peter to get arrested? Why did he allow him to get arrested and thrown in jail and secured that tightly? And to have the sentence of death passed to him. Why did he allow that to happen if his plan was to not have him killed and have him released from prison and go free? I mean, that's pretty stressful stuff for Peter and his wife and his kids and the church to go through. Here is an obvious answer to that question. And it is found in every one of your Christian lives by experience. And it's found in our text. He allows stress, tears, anxiety, pain, confusion in order to drive us to prayer. Often real crises produce a pit in our stomach. Sky is falling and produces the, 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 that desperation of reaching out to God that produces change in us a deeper intimacy with our Lord. So Peter was kept in prison, but not just prayer, earnest prayer. 
That's the same Greek word used of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Earnest. I really mean it now. Prayer for Peter. It was made to God by the church. It was the night before Peter's execution. And the church, thousands in the church in Jerusalem spread out in who knows how many homes throughout the city were fervently praying. There is nothing like a crisis to get people to be praying like we always should be. But we don't. The Lord mercifully brings His people back again and again to the habit of prayer. See, if we, if we could see into the spiritual realm right this instance, we would see that we, each of us, is always on the brink of disaster or setbacks or even physical death. Because we have a great enemy of our souls. It's the way Paul put it, right? You know it well in Ephesians 6. Christian, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we know how he ends that whole section, right? Praying at all times by the Spirit, in the Spirit, praying. So the Lord often delays the resolution to our problems. Delays the springing of the bars being opened at night by an angel so that we will come deeper and deeper into His presence, into dependence like a little helpless child. And which so often in our state of need of constant sanctification Often that is then what is producing the desperation in order that we would really get in touch with reality of how much we need Him. So let me say this. We do see them pray. We see God act. But do not think that God is limited in any way by the prayers of His people. He works through prayers to teach us to depend more and more upon Him. He could have released Peter from that prison like he did without anyone praying for him. And he could have done it as the response to the church praying for Peter. And he prefers to have prayer 
precede his actions in order that his goodness and his glory and his omnipotence and his sovereignty be seen particularly by the church. That's what we prayed for. And God loves to glorify himself through the very prayer that he himself ordains to be. That should be a deep encouragement for every one of us Christians to know God. Here's a general principle about God. He loves to glorify His name in response to the answers of prayer. He may do the same act and he often does, where no one even knows to pray. But he loves prayer that he ordains to proceed in the minds, in the fears, in the consciences of his people, and then act. Because in that sense, he's more glorified through the action that was preceded by prayer then without it. Why not pray? All the more, therefore, knowing that. Now, what if our prayer and what if our praying is utterly flawed and imperfect? What if we pray for God to do something, but we know, I really don't think He's going to do this. Deep down, we have all kinds of doubts. If we pray like that, will He ever answer yes to those prayers? Like, save Peter! Our passage seems to clearly answer that question this way. Absolutely, he will. Read on. Start with verse 12. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, who's the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Where there, at that house, like many other houses all throughout Jerusalem, many were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. She's clearly a Christian. She knows Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, these prayers, please deliver Peter. He's at the gate. No, he's not. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, no, it's his spirit, it's his angel. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were shocked that God answered their prayer. They were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand 
To be silent, Peter described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. That's Jesus' brother, James, who's one of the head honcho pastors of the church for decades in Jerusalem. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and he went to another place. Remember years earlier when Peter got out of jail, he went right back to the temple to preach and risk his life. Here it was different. Evidently he was led. Getting out of jail here, time to get out of town and get safe from Herod. And he does. But these Christians, they prayed. And they prayed earnestly. And that's what's really important in our lives. And then along with them being in prayer together with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we also do the same and we learn what this text says they learned. And that's the truth of what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. And now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we even ask or even think to pray or ask. They learned that. He does it according to the power, the Spirit, who is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so the Lord's answer to our prayers. Got to get this. You've got to know it. They, they do not. His answers do not depend on the merit of our prayers. The answers do not depend on your performance. In prayer. It does not depend on your perfection of, of belief or words, the perfect length in prayer doesn't depend on is your heart really experiencing what it ought to really be experiencing? You've been a good Christian today. Are you His? He knows who are His. And He says, come. Take all of your problems and your trials. Come. You have none? Come and enjoy me. Worship me today. Because I'm going to give you some tomorrow. Get used to my presence. And His answers to particular prayers, whether the answer is yes, and you see it. Or no. 
Or you don't know, and so you keep praying as we are commanded, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, because the answer is not yet, not yet, not yet. His answers to prayer depend on His glory. Not your worthiness. It depends upon His will. It depends upon His real Fatherly, omniscient, and omnipotent love for you, His child, His care, and His mercy. That's what determines what actually will transpire in your life and in the world. And so, as I began, is God God? Is He the eternal? Holy creator of all things, visible and invisible, all-powerful, all-knowing. Is he really absolutely in control of everything? Yes. What safer place to go? And as we say yes, it is okay to feel. Then how can this have happened? He's not afraid of that. It is okay to experience confusion. Dismay. Pain. But, but Father, you're sovereign. And I am in deep pain. Why this trial? Why this depression? And this discouragement? This loss. So when the questions come to your head in prayer, is God really sovereign? The answer is yes. Does He really love me, Christian? The answer, beloved, is yes. In a way we cannot imagine. He is absolutely sovereign. He does love you. And He really is calling you to live in light of the big picture of redemptive history. Your history which will culminate in the future resurrection and unending and eternal glory. And that is why He allows stress where you feel like you're going to break in pain and confusion. One of those reasons underneath it is down here. He's driving you to prayer, to intimacy, to childlike four-year-old dependence because he's changing you. He's making you deeper deeper with him.
And so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so as we transition to preparing our hearts, searching our hearts of sin, He's so faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as those of us who are baptized will receive the cup of His blood and the bread of His body. We will communally be addressing such a great and glorious sovereign God who has taken the likes of us who deserved not just a physical death or a beheading like James. James gloried. Gloried. From that moment on and still awaits the resurrection. As Pastor John Svensson a few weeks ago in the memorial service in El Segundo today. There's pain, there's loss. Susie still will feel it. There's joy. There's all of that. But for John, he just went ahead of us. Glory. We're going to know this as we drink and as we eat. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are good in ways that we are so oblivious to in our undoneness in our finiteness, still racked with fleshly sinful desires. But as little four-year-olds, we trust you. We thank you that you never leave us, but you have given to us, Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate, the counselor, the one who is constantly, constantly grabbing and leading us back. Trusting in the gospel, the gospel of our salvation, the gospel of the glory of God in the person, in the face of Jesus Christ.